I'm Ryan Lightfoot-Brown of Fun Calibre, and welcome to the podcast Investing on the Go. We're joined today by Edmund Harris and Mark Hammonds of the Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Asia is not the natural place most UK investors would look for for income. Um, it's more considered sort of a growth story. What is the income landscape like out there? Well, I think the first point I would say is that Asia still is a growth story, but it has developed substantially over the last 15, 20 years. So it's moved beyond just being about growth from a low base. But you now have a landscape where there are many more economic participants. So consumers um, are present and a big part of the economy now. And the industries and the businesses that serve this consumer base um, are by and large now cash generative, well-established businesses and quite mature. And as a consequence, they're not having to, to reinvest at the same rates that they were. Um, they're generating cash now, generating enough to reinvest and enough to distribute. And so what we found in the last 15 years or so, that the income landscape in Asia has broadened substantially. It's not just now about Australia and New Zealand and developed markets in Hong Kong, but you're also finding Chinese companies, Thai companies, Malaysian companies, also contributing to that. So you've actually got a pretty diverse base of economies, of countries, of companies across sectors um, that have been paying dividends now for a number of years. And as a result, you know, Asia has become now one of the highest yielding and the largest sources of income in regions around the world. Okay. And your recent fund update mentioned the Australian retailer uh, JB Hi-Fi as one of your fund's best performing stocks. Can you tell us a bit more about them and why you like the company in particular? Well, they're an interesting business in clearly a developed market. They're an electronics retailer uh, operating pretty much exclusively in Australia. They have a, they have a New Zealand operation as well, but Australia is, is the core of it. Um, And what marks out Australia is it's a fragmented market. It's comparatively small, extremely competitive. Um, And JB Hi-Fi has demonstrated over many years an ability to control its costs, to achieve the right pricing point. It's generated very strong brand loyalty. Uh, Primarily, it's an offline retailer, but developing um, an online retailer retail channel, uh, particularly in response to to Amazon uh, that has recently arrived in Australia. But JB Hi-Fi's core proposition is selling electronics and household products. So it sounds a bit similar to the curries that most of our investors will know over here. I think it's a good analogy, yes. Um, And now they've suffered quite a lot from the Amazon effect. Why hasn't JB Hi-Fi suffered from... um, such such difficulties as our names have over here. Yeah, I think um, it goes back to what Edmund was saying earlier that um, it, Amazon is relatively newly established in Australia. They entered the market at the end of 2017. Um, Australia is quite a different market and Amazon obviously doesn't have the same presence it has there um, that we see in the UK or the US, for example. 
Um, obviously, in Australia, you've got cities that are uh, much more disparate, so there is that challenge of distribution um, and simply getting goods around the country. So it's it's still relatively early days for the Amazon effort. We've seen fairly uh, limited impact on JB Hi-Fi, I'd say, so far. Uh, good indications that the company is able to compete effectively on pricing and we've looked at um, pricing of their goods versus the the same on Amazon and JB Hi-Fi is consistently coming in in cheaper Um, and really this is a you know an excellent business that's shown over time the ability to um, to sort of merchandise well and and to keep costs under control and to keep costs contained Um, so that that sort of gives us uh, sort of great confidence that they're more able to to compete with the likes of Amazon and we've seen in the past them offering discounts in order to stay and investing in pricing in order to stay competitive but we look at Amazon we look at Alibaba you know as potential competitors in that online space it's interesting Amazon got off to quite a slow start in Australia Um, and as Mark said they've only been there a couple of years the country manager has now been replaced he's he's going to another part of the Amazon business Um, and Amazon wasn't embraced in quite the same way as it uh, as it has been in 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 some of the European markets and the US market obviously Um, maybe that's partly a pricing problem and the JB Hi-Fi in many cases is cheaper than Amazon there are issues apparently over delivery. Um, Amazon had to rely on its US distribution to, to ship stuff in, which meant that it took longer. Um, then they had to abandon that because of Australia's new GST rules, so the, uh, the, the equivalent of VAT. Uh, and so shipping from America into Australia became problematic. So they're having to sort of readjust. What I do think is that Amazon over the next five years in Australia is going to be a formidable competitor. But the impact on the likes of JB Hi-Fi has been much lower because the Australian market was already competitive. You already had to be pretty good at what you did. And this goes back to some of the things that we look for as defining characteristics of the companies that we invest in. You know, we look back over a company's track record over at least the past eight years, and a company has to have been consistently profitable and uh, cash generative over that time, and d- demonstrating good returns on capital. And obviously, if you the, the longer period you look back over, uh, you're going to capture those periods where there's been tougher economic conditions, and you want to see a company that's sort of withstood that and been able to thrive through that environment. Yeah, you're, you're looking for a business that can beat back the forces of competition, that they can adapt either through product, through distribution, through branding, through pricing, through cost management, that they can keep their heads above water. And in a market like Australia, where the competition is pretty intense, JB Hi-Fi has managed to do that. The arrival of Amazon has not knocked it off its stride yet, which means then that they have time to respond. They can see how Amazon evolves. They can see how they're going to evolve. Yeah, moving on to sort of the, uh, the rest of the portfolio, on a country basis, you've got quite a noticeable percentage in US companies. Um, how come these feature in an Asian fund? Uh, well, we have two companies in the portfolio, Aflac and Qualcomm. Um, they're both US-listed companies. They're both there because in our universe of around 300 companies, we will include Asian-listed companies, but also companies that derive more than half of their revenue from Asia. So in the case of Qualcomm, it's uh, selling chips to China. In the case of Aflac, 
like it has a substantial uh, Japanese medical insurance business. So we have a handful of these uh, extra names in the, in the universe to pick from uh, where they derive the majority of their business from Asia. Um, we have um, a process uh, that, that is based upon an equally weighted portfolio. So we have a list of 36 companies that we like. We put the same amount in each investment. We keep it that way. And the reason that we do that is because rather than try and sort of identify where Asia is going and what themes are on the rise, what we're interested in are companies that are doing a good job in whatever it is they do. So JB Hi-Fi is doing a very good job in electrical retail in Australia. Tisco Finance is doing a very good job in financing for motorcycles and cars in Thailand in the mid-tier market. Completely different. But the same basic principle is that each of those companies has shown an ability to convert competitive advantages into cash generating more cash than they need for reinvestment, and that's where our, our dividends are, are coming from. So yes, we've got a couple of names um, in US companies. We'll go anywhere, um, but if we're going to invest in companies that are not listed in the region, then they have to be doing a substantial chunk of their business. At least over half of their revenues must be coming uh, from the region. And going to the slightly bigger picture, one of the biggest stories this year has been the trade wars between China and the US. Um, you've got over a quarter of the fund in China. Does the situation worry you at all? It's certainly a concern. Um, and anybody who says otherwise um, is sort of <laughs> missing uh, something because the dispute between the United States and China on trade has a big impact on supply chains that affect global businesses. It, it, when we look at what is going on between the US and China and we, we see the, the protests coming through from US business to their own uh, leadership, as well as the pressures that we're, we're seeing in China, the effect is to add greater frictions to movement of goods and, and trade. And that means higher costs, greater inefficiencies, lower margins, lower profits, slower growth. Um, and so the way we look at managing this is to focus on those businesses that are market leaders in whatever it is they do that their products cannot easily be substituted um, by some sort of cheaper or, or alternative source. Um, about 40% uh, of all the goods that come into the US from China are areas where China is the major supplier that are not easily substitutable. What we have seen um, as a consequence is that U.S. reliance on, on Chinese goods is quite high. They have not been able to, um, to find alternative sources. And as a result, demand has simply sagged. And that's, one could look at it as sort of sand in the wheels, that that's what this trade dispute um, amounts to. And I think it's going to take a little time to resolve. But by focusing on businesses that are market leaders in what they do, that are serving both the domestic markets in Asia as well as the export markets, um, I think we've got 
some diversification going on. And I think just to, just to add to that, one of the things that the, the trade war has sort of highlighted is that just how entrenched some of the supply chains are in China. And we've seen, certainly in the, in the short term, quite a big uptick in activity in, in Vietnam as, as manufacturers try and relocate outside of China. But actually, that you know, you start to see other problems that that causes, such as um, a shortness in, in, in the labor markets. Um, and manufacturers struggling because not all of the components can be produced in in the country whereas in china you've got a much more integrated supply chain so if anything it it does tend to highlight the um the key role that, that china plays in in global trade it's not just the ability of one factory that knows how to make something well it's all the other things that go around it the skilled labor force the the supply chains the proximity of suppliers from one factory to another. So you've got industrial clustering. It's the logistics network that connects the factories um, with each other and connects them to the ports where goods can be, can be shipped. So you're talking about air communications, road um, and maritime communications. That is why Asia has become such a manufacturing powerhouse. And The result of a trade dispute may mean that Chinese companies will need to establish factories in other parts of the region um, and supply chains will have to adjust and they, they, they almost certainly will, although we haven't seen a lot of evidence of that happening just yet. But that is that is clearly a trend. What will that mean? Well, it'll spread the wealth more broadly in Asia. Other countries will rise. So, Always there will be opportunities. It's just the opportunities themselves are going to change in nature. But for, for investors, um, I think you, know, you, you have a part of the world which is a creditor region. It means that we are in debt. The US is in debt. Europe, excluding Germany, is in debt. And Asia isn't. Um, And even when you're thinking about, well, China's got a lot of debt. Yes, it does in parts, but it also has substantial assets and resources. They're just at the moment mismatched, but they are there. And that, I think, is very important if you're taking a, a longer term view of why it is you would invest in Asia for the next 10 years, which for an income fund like this is exactly what we're thinking. We're looking at businesses that have been well established over eight, nine, 10 years. We're thinking about what these businesses are going to do over the next 10 years, not over the next 18 months. And I think this, this trade dispute going to happen sometime. It was going to be inevitable. But um, I mean, it's interesting. This is a sort of going slightly off at a tangent. But China has grown on the back of technology acquisition and know-how, not um, organically or internally generated, but acquired. That was how Korea did it. Um, South Korea built itself up through the 60s, 70s, 80s on the back of acquisitions of, uh, of technology or know-how, or you know, they would buy a car from Japan. They would take it apart. They would look at how it had been made and then try and do it more cheaply. But there came a point when Korea had to, to move on and design its own stuff, design its own cars, its own electronics. Now Korea produces cars um, through Hyundai and Kia, 
they were the first to offer seven-year warranties. Seven-year warranties, it means that the quality of those goods was strong enough that the company felt able to offer a warranty for seven years when domestic car producers here would only offer one, two, or three years at most. Now seven years is setting the standard. So Korea moved on and developed its own know-how. That is what China is now going to have to do, and that is what they are talking about. And in some respects, that is the thing that worries the United States the most, but I think is a necessity if China is to move on from the so-called middle-income track to become um, a higher-income nation. And some of the drivers behind that, that push are really China's population uh, structure. But that's a whole other topic. <laughs> well, Edwin, Mark, that's been really interesting. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And for more information on the Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to listen to more of the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not be holding these stocks at time of your listening. <laughs>